Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. In today's program, we begin part two of The Tale of Two Cities. The message is from our series, He Made Me Human. So let's begin as we turn in our text to Genesis chapter 4, verses 25, to chapter 5, verse 24, with Dr. John Newfound. One of the truly great works of Christian literature is a book entitled City of God, written by Augustine, the Christian bishop of Hippo in the early 5th century. The book was originally written in response to a charge made against Christians. Pagans were arguing that the decline of the Roman Empire was due to the Christians since before the rise of Christianity, Rome under her many gods and goddesses was doing just fine. But ever since the rise of Christians and the belief in one God, and with that, the destruction of Roman historic religion, it was the turning to Christianity, it was argued, that led to Rome's collapse. The Roman gods were now punishing the city. In response, Augustine writes a masterful treatise. In the first section, Augustine offers up a withering critique of pagan religion, showing that it led to moral corruption and that the Roman gods were never able to deliver Rome in the moments of crisis. Then Augustine goes on to show that the only reason Rome endured for centuries was because it was the will of the one true God. Augustine even went on to prove that among ancient philosophers of Rome, the gods themselves were never held out to be virtuous. And if there was any virtue in Rome in the past, it was due to the grace of the one true God. And as the book progresses, Augustine moves beyond a discussion of the cause of the collapse of Rome and tells of a story, the one found in the Bible, that long history of the human race is a tale of two cities, one being the city of man and the other being the city of God. He points out that corruption and sin began with the sin of Adam and can be traced from the events in Genesis from the murder of Abel to the universal flood. Rome has always been a part of the city of man, which was destined to pass away. See, Augustine wrote those words against a background in which many people thought and believed that Rome itself was an eternal city and that it could never fall. But it is only the city of God that is eternal, and even though it might seem weak and helpless now, it is altogether enduring. Hence the tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. The city of man, wrote Augustine, is characterized by the love of self and the hatred of God. In contrast, the city of God is characterized by the denial of self and the exaltation and love of God. And if you were with us yesterday, you heard me speak about a city, most likely the first ever human city. That city was called Enoch, named after the son of the very first human murderer. The city grew because of human engineering, soon established productive agriculture, a flourishing of the arts, the development of bronze and iron, and the progress of human technology. But the city also changed the design of human relationships. Marriage was replaced by all manner of alternative expressions of human sexuality and alternative expressions of the family. The city was ruled by raw and brute power. When we came to the end of Genesis 4, we don't actually have a record of an alternative city. In fact, all the Bible actually gives us is an alternative genealogy to the city of Enoch. Now, the reason for that is that we're not supposed to think of the city of God at this time as an actual physical city with the beginnings of defensive fortifications. Indeed, as time goes by, we're going to see that the godly genealogy is almost wiped out entirely. 
The city of man just seems stronger and better equipped for survival. But the city of God knows something the city of man will never know. The city of God knows their God. So let's begin to read first with the very last section of Genesis 4 from verses 25 and 26. There we read, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Please notice that in verse 25, Eve's statement that God had appointed another offspring is so very similar to what Eve had said when Cain was first born. Now, you may recall that we noticed then that when the first ever child was born into the world, Eve had said, with the help of the Lord, I have begotten a man. Now, that statement is a statement of hope. After the fall, God had promised in Genesis 3.15 that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent, and Eve thought that Cain would be that man. But how she must have been crushed when she found that the man she hoped in was no deliverer at all but was in fact the world's first murderer and then the founder of the first ever city of man. But here in chapter 4, verse 25, we find that Eve has not stopped hoping in the promise of God. The words remind us that our first mother may have been deceived into sin, but she never stopped hoping in the promise of God. Now, I personally expect to see Eve in heaven. And the birth of Seth immediately starts her hoping again. And by the time Seth is married and has a son of his own, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. The phrase implies that they are seeking him in public worship. The offering of Abel accepted before God is now repeated in the descendants of Seth. What I want us to do now is to try to remember the attributes of the city of man and compare them with the city of God. When yesterday we spoke of the attributes of the city of God, we said that the first of them was that it was a city that celebrated the greatness of humanity. But now we notice that while the line of Cain is growing and, and celebrating human achievement, the people of God, or as I have called it, the city of God is also growing. And the first attribute of this city is the establishment of a center for worship. People are calling upon the Lord. Now, this is not a celebration of human achievement. This is a celebration of God. Seth led people to call upon the Lord. It's a revival. The emphasis gives glory to God. And this is not the opposite of human inventions or of human ingenuity. It is the emphasis that in the end, it is only the kindness and love of God that allows human beings to flourish. You know, I love the stories of revival in the history of the church. You know, prior to the Wesleyan revivals in England, all of England was lurching toward a revolution much like the French Revolution. Poverty was everywhere. Drunkenness was at an all-time high. You, you couldn't travel the streets for fear of bandits and murderers and robbers. But within a very few short years, God raised up a George Whitfield and a John Wesley, and revival swept through the country. In consequence, England ended slavery without a war. Child labor came to an end. Churches were full, and people called upon the Lord. That is the tale of the city of God making its appearance right within the city of man. Let's continue to read our passage now to Genesis 5, 1-2. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, as chapter 5 of Genesis opens, we might wonder why one of the major themes from Genesis 1 and 2 gets repeated here. You're going to remember Genesis 1, 27 to 28. There we read, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, that was the central theme then, and it's again brought in as the central theme in chapter 5. But all of this follows naturally. Because Seth leads his family back to worship, it's only natural now to remember why God created man in the first place. Genesis 5 recounts the revival that happens after Seth. People were again remembering God's intention for them. Also, marriage is returned to its rightful place in human relationships. Sexuality is ordered rightly. Seth leads his family back to faithfulness to one spouse, to celebrating of God creating male and female. It's a celebration of how God intended us to live. See, let's again contrast the city of man to the city of God. We noted that the city of man was marked with an emphasis on humanity's greatness, where the city of God was marked with an emphasis on the glory of God. And now to the second contrast. The city of man divorces God's intention for our body and the meaning of sex, but the city of God restores it, and male and female rediscover their purpose in creation. If God is gracious and we see another revival in our day, A natural byproduct of that will be that we will recapture God's intention for the body. Beauty and purpose will be defined not in terms of seductiveness, but rather in terms of faithfulness. You know, and when we come back, we will notice the last two marks of the city of God. They have everything in the world to do with how we view history and the direction of the human family. More when we come back. In continuing our study of the tale of two cities, we realize the remarkable contrast between a worldview that elevates man versus one that worships and follows God. Despite the dominance and success of Cain's city, Enoch, it's clear that there was a divine plan all along to stir a spiritual revival among God's people through Seth. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand more about how these two different realities apply to our world today. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request four minutes for frazzled families. 
and we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free. One of the unfortunate difficulties that some of us have when reading the Old Testament is that we find some of the genealogical lists to be wearying, and so we're tempted to skip over them and move on to the story. But in doing this, we're missing something vital. So let me do the difficult thing and read Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 to 24. Please try to bear with me, and in just a little while, I'll explain why this is such a great passage. So here we go. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Now, if we were to understand this genealogy and what it means, it's necessary to compare Lamech, the victorious ruler of the city of Enoch, to another man named Enoch, mentioned in the list of the genealogy that comes from Seth. Both men are exactly seven generations from Adam. The number seven speaks of completion or perfection. In that sense, Lamech represents the completion of the city of man, and Enoch represents the completion of the people of God. But what do we know about this man, Enoch? Well, we do know that he was a preacher and a prophet. He knew about the final judgment of the world and called people back to righteousness. Now, how do we know that? Well, listen to what the Bible says about him from the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. There it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all of the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That was Enoch's message. The Lord is coming to judge. Repent now. Now, what kind of a man was he? Well, we know that he was a man of faith because Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, Enoch tells a very different story than the story of Lamech. 
Lamech seemed determined to protect himself. Lamech made his sword into his God, and Enoch was determined to trust the one true and living God, and because of that, well, he never died. I don't know how it was that this man walked so closely with God that God simply desired to take him into his immediate presence, so much so that he was simply exempt from the law of death. But that was the story of Enoch. So let's compare the city of God with the city of man again. We noticed when we studied the history of the descendants of Cain that the city of man was flourishing with arts and sciences and human ingenuity. Nothing wrong with that except when they are an end in themselves. But among the people of God, it's righteousness and repentance and faith and pleasing God that's flourishing. Now, had you lived among God's people at that time, you might have been overwhelmed with the power of the living God in the lives of his people. You might have been amazed to see God interacting with the people who worshipped him. I am sure they witnessed miracles, and I am sure that as this civilization of God's people flourishes, it would have been lost on no one that Enoch was taken into God's presence without dying. But our story is not done. If anything, there's one more powerful contrast to bring between these two cities. We noted in our last broadcast that among the city of men, human power and the ability of the strongest to dictate terms to everyone else won the day. But not among the people of God. For them, it was the hope of the living God that had won. No doubt the people of God were still dreaming of the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God would send his deliverer to crush the head of the serpent. No doubt they believed that he would appear at any moment. But we who know the full measure of that story know that that would not happen yet for several thousand years, but the hope was alive. Now, before we leave the contrast of the tale of two cities, I think it appropriate to recount three important lessons that we can take from these two cities and how that impacts us today. Here's lesson number one. Both cities received common grace. You know, the term common grace is actually a technical term that Bible teachers sometimes use to describe the reality that is taught in the Bible. Jesus said that God causes his reign to fall on the just and on the unjust, meaning that there is a grace from God, a common grace, that comes to all regardless of their faith commitment. Even when men and women don't honor God, God still clothes them with coats of skins. He provides them with resources and blessings they need both to survive and to thrive. The arts, business, sciences, advancements in technology, abundance in food production, which even creates surpluses, all this happens to societies that never even call upon God, and it's evidence of the grace of God. Why? Because God loves all people, even those who do not love him. Now let's go to lesson number two. Death and pain attend both places. I notice both places have a genealogy. Life comes to both places, but so does death. A great many people have wondered at the long lifespans presented in this text. But I'm convinced that these people did indeed live over 900 years. Imagine the accumulation of knowledge. See, what strikes me as amazing from the genealogy of Seth is that people actually had children at a much later time than we do. It was not unusual for a person to have a baby at 100 years of age, and this would have allowed for a great deal of wisdom to be exercised in the raising of children. Mark Twain once complained that youth was wasted on the young, but it was not always so. 
And yet, in spite of the long lifespans, every single person's life ends with these words, and he died. They died in the city of God, and they died in the city of man. What's more, at the birth of Noah, the people of God hoped that he would comfort us in our painful toil. That's life. Now on to lesson number three. These cities were formed because of a very different value base. You know, it may seem to us that the city of man enjoys its splendor now, but it was swept away in the flood and will again be swept away at the judgment seat of Christ. The city of God seems somewhat poor now, but will come into its glory in the age to be revealed. And that's the ultimate difference between these two cities. One invests entirely in this age, what Jesus would later call the house that was built on the sand, that when the flood came, it would be swept away. The other invests entirely in the age to come, knowing that we are created for God and that in the end, the purposes of God, those purposes for which we have been created on this earth cannot fail. And so here's the question, in which city do you want to live? The one that's built on sinking sand or the one that's found on eternal promises. Choose life. Choose the city that will last forever. John, this is a unique message you shared today. And I'm wondering, does it have a specific message for the church? So I mean the difference between the city of man and the city of God. You know, it was Charles Spurgeon that once said that the uh, church is likened to a ship that's in the ocean, and the ship needs to be in the ocean, but woe be to the ship where the ocean gets in it. And so I think uh, we can subvert or allow our way to be subverted by the city of man so that the church becomes indistinguishable from the people as a whole. And when that happens, well, that is what happened later on in Genesis when the godly line is almost extinguished. That can happen to the church. The good news, I think, from Genesis is God will never allow his church to be defeated in the end. That I know for certain. Uh, We must at every generation, however, decide that we will stand with God and not with the city of man. When we read the genealogy of Adam here, we may neglect to study its significance. After all, it's just a list of names. But this message has opened our eyes to see what it tells us about the kind of people who chose to follow God and those who did not. May we continue to reflect on the truths we've been taught today and be encouraged that it is God's kingdom that will, in the end, prevail. Don't miss our program tomorrow as we continue to unpack Genesis 5 and 6 in our series, He Made Me Human. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, Our mission is to reach God's people and engage them in His Word through expositional Bible teaching. To achieve this, we make our Bible teaching and engagement resources available in as many forms on as many mediums as possible. One of these resources includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, containing exclusive articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Gain's Phil Calloway, and a variety of pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. In it, you'll also find information about upcoming special ministry events, activities, and projects. It's our hope that this resource would encourage, inspire, and disciple readers to a deeper relationship with the Lord. 
To subscribe and receive a physical copy of our June issue of Truth and Life magazine mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca slash magazine or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.